This morning, I'm very, I'm very pleased to, uh, to welcome uh, a dear friend and a very capable preacher to the pulpit. This young man, uh, I've gotten to know him over the last three or four years, and uh, we've become fast friends. And uh, you've met him. He's preached in the pulpit once before. I was away at the time, but I listened to his sermon online afterwards, and I was absolutely thoroughly blessed by what he had to say. He made me look bad because he gave his sermon in 30 minutes or less, which is impossible for me. And uh, so he's already, he's already climbed the ladder higher than I have. But it is my pleasure this morning to welcome Ben Green to the pulpit. And uh, would you guys give Ben your heart, give him your ears, and, um, and you're welcome. Thank you, Ben. I'm going to pray for you, my, my friends. Please, please do. Lord, I just thank you for this wonderful brother. I thank you, Lord, for the work of grace that you have completed in his heart. And you are, you are at work in his family with, Lord, we, we, we give you honor and praise that uh, you have redeemed him. <laughs> and, Father, I thank you that uh, Ben is, has committed his heart to serving you and to following you all the days of his life. And I ask that today... You would inspire him in this pulpit, that his words would be rich, that they'd be the words of Christ. And uh, Lord, may our hearts truly be open to hear what you have to say through your servant in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank Amen. you. Thank you, brother. Hey, last time I came, I gave Richard a baseball bat case because, you know, Pastor Eric was out of town. So somebody had to, like, you know, be in charge. So I gave him a baseball bat. He didn't use it, and I didn't bring it this morning. But today, when my kids heard that Dylan was doing upstairs. Mon was the one who was standing like this, as tall as he possibly could. So, and he was looking at my sermon before I got up here. So, you know, God help you. So about seven years ago, I was sitting on my front porch. I like to sit on my front porch on nice days, not yesterday, but other days. I like to be outside. And I'm sitting out on my front porch. It was a fall afternoon. It was sunny. And this Harley Davidson rumbles by. I lived on a little two-lane street. Harley Davidson rumbles past, pulls to a stop in front of me. And above the roar of his V-twin or the rumble of his V-twin engine, he says, hey, where's the nearest liquor store? And I said, well, it's right down the street because it was like 100 yards away, 200, 300 yards away. So I said, you know, go past the Italian restaurant. It's down there in the shopping center. And about that time, I looked, and I noticed he had on a bandana folded back like, that, like people will wear. And, and I could see a cross in a different color on the background of the, back, on the bandana. So I got an orange bandana. I think it was a blue cross. And I see that. So I said to him, hey, are you a Christian? And he said, no. And I said, okay, no offense, but I didn't think so. I, but I saw the cross, like it's this really bright, obvious cross on your bandana. So I thought maybe you were, but no offense, I didn't think you, know, you were. And he says, well, actually I am, but I'm just not practicing. <laughs> now, this is not about being against Harley Davidsons. My best friend has a, had a Harley Davidson. I like them. They just don't come with car seats. So it's kind of like the wrong generation. You know, you can't do that. But this guy got me thinking, what does God say to us in these moments? Because I'm just some guy on the front porch. I'm not God on my front porch. And yet this guy's like, well, I am, but I'm not practicing. And he's kind of something, right? He's something's going through his mind. And I wonder, what does God say to us in these moments? Because I think we've all got a little bit of space in our life where we've got this cross <laughs> on our metaphorical bandana. Maybe some of you have real bandanas. Maybe you have Christian bandanas. That's fine if you do. But it's not about that. But we've all got this gap in our life, this thing that makes us say, well, I am, but... On a good day, 
My gap is really, really small, thanks be to God. I have a few of those days, but there's other days when, Lord have mercy, the gap is huge. You know, the gap is huge. What does God say in those kind of moments? Well, Psalm 2 is what I read to you from his word today. I'm going to read all of Psalm 2. Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heavens laugh, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now then, you kings, use insight. Let yourselves be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he not be angry and you perish on the way. For his wrath may be kindled quickly. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray again. Father, your word is what's echoing in our ears. It's also in our hearts. It's in our mind. It's what we need to meditate on. It's what we need to reflect on. And we just ask that you would do what you've been doing for centuries, which is to speak over creation and to form something new. You were doing it before there was ever sin in this world, and we know you've continued to do it, and we ask that you do it again this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How does the question of verse 1 sound to you? The question again was, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? I'm asking this because I just want you to think, how is God talking to you? I mean, this is God talking to you. This is God talking to me. Is he mocking you? Is he mocking me? Is it, what's his tone of voice? How's he speaking to you? Or is he mourning the actions of these people? What kind of God is this talking to us? Number one, we'll just clear out some cobwebs first, just kind of clear out some things here in our minds. Pastor Eric told us last week, just last week, about Exodus 34. Moses says, God, I want to see you. And God arranges an interaction between them wherein Moses hears from God and sees part of who God is. But God says about himself, I'm compassionate. I'm merciful, I'm kind, I'm faithful, I'm loving, I forgive sins. But God's words also get a little complicated. He says some sins won't be forgiven, which leads to another cobweb. Psalm 2 is not, number one, God has enemies. Number two, God laughs in their faces. Number three, God's got all the authority. So number four, just get on God's good side. This sermon would be really short if we could just like simplify scripture, water it down and be like, he's got enemies, he's laughing in their faces, just get on his good side, right? That's all we got to do, just get on his good side. Just don't want to be laughed at, so I'm just going to get on his good side. I don't want to be mocked, I don't want to have terror and fury and all those other hard things. 
If it's not that, then what is this? What are the Psalms? I mean, what is this message coming to us? Well, are they, are they ancient worship songs? Is it a sermon, but it's set to music, which would be a little better than right now? What is this? What, what is this going on with Psalm? Well, the answer comes from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The very first verse of Psalm 1 says that the purpose of everything in the whole book of Psalms is instruction, teaching, passing on knowledge to us, for the purpose of living differently, so we can walk into God's blessing on our life. Now, I'll give you a little bit more. Psalm number one, I mean, Psalm one, verse one, begins with a blessing. How blessed is, and then it goes on to talk about a life of obedience. So it starts with that in verse one of chapter one, how blessed. Psalm number one ends with a curse. Psalm number two starts with this curse, but Psalm number two ends with a sentence that says, how blessed are all who take refuge. So we've got blessing, curse, curse, blessing. And in between the blessing of verse 1, chapter 1, and in between the blessing of verse 2, chapter 12, they, they operate like fences. They operate like a literary version of boundaries. And within that, faith can grow. Within that, love can grow. Within that, hope can grow. Humanity can flourish between listening and between taking refuge in God. All right, now you could say, well, that's really nice. The purpose of the Psalms is instruct me how to be happy and blessed, but the world is full of brokenness and pain, murder and lust and agony and divorce and terrible things happening and temperatures below zero. There's a reason why liquor stores make lots of money, right? I mean... And to be honest, the people who wrote the Psalms and the people who heard the Psalms get this. Psalm number three starts out with bad news. I'll save you from reading all these Psalms. Psalm number three starts out with bad news. Psalm number four, more bad news. Psalm five, bad news. Psalm six, anguish of the soul. Psalm seven, no one to rescue me. Psalm 10, times of trouble. Psalm 11, foundations are being destroyed. Psalm 12, the godly are no more. Is it any wonder? Psalm 13, how long will my enemy triumph over me? I can't take it anymore. What happened to how blessed is the man in Psalm one? What happened to how blessed are those who take refuge? I thought I had this like fence telling me that if I stayed in the fence, life would flourish. What happened? We've got to face something unfortunate, and we might as well do it right now. People who don't want God's authority always assert their autonomy. It happened with Adam and Eve. It happened with Cain and Abel, David and Bathsheba, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Those who reject God's influence will wound themselves and wound you and wound me. Did not God say in the garden, you will die? Yeah. And yet Christ made another way. Now, after the rebellious autonomy, this assertion by God's enemies, what else does Psalm 2 say to us? Well, honestly, the next thing that comes up in Psalm 2 is the anger of God. Now, that's awkward. <laughs> Some of you came here wanting to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. You were hoping to hear something else. Rebellious, selfish people, even if it's you, it feels like real life. You kind of already knew about that. But an angry God who laughs in their faces, who terrifies people with his fury, what do you do with this? This is no Jesus meek and mild. I started following Christ in high school, and um, 
you know, I'd heard some things about Christianity. I grew up in the Bible Belt, so I'd heard some things about Christianity, but it was high school before anything started to click, and the high school church I went to was great. I'm super thankful for it, and they used to sing this song, uh, In the Garden. Maybe you know it. It goes, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Sounds beautiful. And I don't doubt the message of that hymn, Christ is a friend to sinners. sinners. He, he just richly pours out blessings on his intimate companions. He says, this is me. This is the kingdom. This is life. But what do we do with the anger of God, this God who is raging and terrifying to these unruly, disrespectful people in Psalm 2? This, well, the God who made all of this, the place to start is the God who made all of this put us in a garden and said, this is where I want you to live. Walk with me naked and unashamed. And this God of love who made us for friendship, who made us for faithfulness, who made us for service, had to watch us walk right out of the garden, deceived into thinking that we needed something else or we needed someone else. We turned our back on him and we're on this, this wretched, restless quest and humans have the problem now, but God has the pain. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we have to recognize the rightness of God being angry at people who would scorn such a gift as his son. He's angry about it because he loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son. God gave his own son out of grace, and some people still mock him and publicly disgrace him and even oppose him wherever they can. But Christ made another way. Now look at the grammar in verse 6. i got to show you this. My seventh grade English teacher would be so proud. <laughs> Mrs. Lynch was her name. She'll never know that this probably. But, and you're saying to yourself, thinking of things you'd never know. You're probably thinking, you have a southern accent. I'm not sure you know grammar. Well, I'm not sure I do either. But they taught it in seventh grade, okay? So at least in seventh grade, I, heard, I, I got it. Now, I don't know about now, but I, I got it back then. Verse 6 says, has installed. God's talking, and I won't read the whole psalm again, but God's talking, and he says, I have installed my king. I want to get out my theological microscope. I want you to get out your theological microscope and look close at this idea of has installed. Because the whole psalm, if you want to use a musical term, the whole psalm is building to a crescendo. As we get to verse 6, the psalm is gaining momentum, it's gaining volume, it's gaining energy. If you want to use a different metaphor, it's like an ocean wave. And I didn't grow up next to the ocean, but I've had plenty of chances now to watch it. As I was driving here, the bay where, near where we live was pretty frozen, but still way out there I could see waves. Usually every day, right, we see waves, and Psalm 2 is building like a wave. Here's what happens. Verse 1 says, why are the nations in an uproar? And verse 12 says, how blessed are all who take refuge. And we wrestle with that. We're kind of like, those two, that, I don't get that. And then verse 1 says, why are the peoples devising a vain thing? I got my liquor store. That's what that means. Verse 12 says, his wrath may soon be kindled. Verse 2 says, the kings take a stand. Verse 12, do homage to the sun. I'm going to get a Christian bandana. That's what that means. Put, just get a cross on my bandana there. Verse 2, the rulers take counsel among themselves. Verse 12 says, show discernment, take warning from the Lord. Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart. You feel the intensity building? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. God's not giving up. 
The gap between the verses is shrinking. The wave is building. The crescendo is coming. Verse 3, cast away their cords. Verse 8, the very ends of the earth are your possession. Verse 5 says God's enemies are terrified. And verse 6 puts it all together. I have installed my king. What is God's first step toward the anger? Grace. Verse 6 says, I've installed my king. This originally referred to David and Solomon. This is Psalms. David, Solomon, that's who they'd be thinking about when they talk about kings. They're thinking about all those kings. But with all of Scripture written, we realize that all of Scripture was looking forward to someone greater than David. These people reading this, they're thinking about David. Their expectations are Davidic, but ours are divine because we're looking back at what they looked forward to. God's own son is king over all. And the good news is he's secure about this. He's not stopped. He's not hindered. He's not thwarted. He's not insecure. He's not doubting. He's not unsure, discouraged, confused, or dismayed. I have installed my king. Centuries after Psalm 2, Christ himself was sought out in the middle of a long night by Roman soldiers. They came to arrest him, but when he spoke, do you know what happened? His words knocked them down. Talking about grown men used to wearing armor and swords and running and fighting. He speaks, they fall flat on their backs. Far from being confronted, Christ confronted them because God said, I've installed my king. The Lord reigns. This is getting good. Verse 7 says, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've fathered you. The Nicene Creed, you can dig into Christian history and realize people are trying to say, how do we communicate about who Jesus was? They had a big conversation with a bunch of smart people in a room. The Nicene Creed flows out of it. If I'm not doing this good, you fix this later. So, but it said this, Christ was begotten, not made. It's rooted in Psalm 2. It's confirmed in the whole New Testament. But now what begotten means is that Christ is one of a kind. Now, this is more than my son Caleb or my son Dawson. I could say, man, Caleb's one of a kind. He was the one who, by the way, he was like, let me get out of this sermon. He, I could say, he's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. Dawson is one of a kind because they're my only sons. I could say they're my one and only or my two and only son or something. But Christ is one of a kind in a totally different way, totally greater way. B.B. Warfield says, Jesus is all that God is, and he alone is this. Because, see, my sons, Caleb or Dawson, they're not all that I am. There's some of what I am. There's some kind of shared identity, right? But they're not all that I am. Jesus is all that God is. Christ made another way. This is why verse 10 says, Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, judges of the earth. It's time to start thinking about how this sermon applies in some specific ways if verses 1 to 5 spoke on a heart level about rage and rebellion and mourning, and verses 6 to 9 show that the Lord reigns, verses 10 to 12 have a little bit of application for us. As the psalm begins to close, God has some commands and a promise. First, he says, serve the son with a submissive heart. There's a command to obey. Serve the Lord and honor the Son. And Psalm 2 is talking to powerful individuals and large groups of people from all over the world at all times and all places. Psalm 2 speaks to anyone opposed to honoring the Son as God's appointed ruler. The application to us is to be willing to accept the reign of the Lord more and more and more. Do you sometimes wear your Christian bandana? 
on the way to your weakness? Blessed are those who obey. That's what Psalm 1 says. Remember, it's instruction. It's trying to teach us how to walk into blessedness, how to stay in the boundaries of God's life for us. And the Holy Spirit is able to help. We talked about it. We prayed about it. We sang about it. The Holy Spirit is able to help. We're not alone in our trials. The Lord is a refuge. That's the end of Psalm 2. The Lord is a refuge. How blessed are those who obey him, who run to him. When you do that, that reverses the rejection of God's authority. In your life, in your choices, or in somebody else's to you, taking refuge in him is refuge. It saves you. It shelters you. It brings you out of those other things. And when we live under his authority, more of the creation becomes his. There's also this message that develops, starts, with, starts before Psalm 2, goes all the way back to Genesis, but it's in Psalm 2, it's in Matthew, it's Acts, it's Revelation. It says, we, we as people who believe in God have a serious part to play in ruling over all that has been made. We can make disciples of all nations, and when we do, Jesus' rule expands. When we obey, his rule expands. Everything you do can be an image of God on his throne. There's another book I read, I forget the title right off, but it was by someone named Andreas Kostenberger. You don't have to remember that, but Andreas Kostenberger says we're representative rulers. That is, created beings who heard God say, fill the earth and subdue it, or fill the earth and have dominion, or, or grow and multiply and be fruitful. What that gives me, this image that gives me in my mind is that each one of us, if we're obeying God where we are, are like little kings, we're not the king. Can't get ourselves, you know, can't get too big for our britches. We, we're not the king, but we're little kings. Our homes, our influence at work, even if all we have is like a cubicle, you know, or this little space, the way we drive, whatever, like our little sphere of influence or our big sphere of influence becomes a place where people look and say, wow, that's a city on a hill. That's a light in the darkness right there. That's a place of love and hope. That's somebody doing life right. That's somebody who's living in a way that I'd, I'd kind of like to have a little bit more of what they have. It's this little, tiny space, or maybe medium-sized space, where the reign of God is made visible on the earth. When we serve God, when we're obedient whenever we can, however we can, it closes that gap a little bit. And there's grace. Like I said, you know, I've got days when the gap's like, whoo, man, that's, that's tight. I feel good. And I got other days when it's like my family, my kids are like, get out, go outside, you know. So get outside, go somewhere. We don't want to be around you right now. The Bible teaches us the Spirit helps us. We can obey more than we might think. A second application here is to be encouraged. The Lord reigns. There's another book that helped me a lot with understanding the Bible, by the way. It's called Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks says there's eight or nine applications to all of Scripture. Not necessarily every verse has eight applications or nine applications, but Howard Hendricks says that there's eight or nine of these general categories. So it might be a promise to trust. It might be a command to obey. It might be a truth to know, something like that. But he says there's eight of these categories, eight or nine categories. On his list, one of these is the promises of Scripture. There's a promise in Psalm 2, the Lord reigns. God has installed his king. He will rule over the rebellious people. He will prove himself a refuge for those who trust in him. And it's a, this is kind of a double-barreled encouragement, in my opinion. It's like two encouragements coming at us from two different ways, you might say. 
If you're dismayed by how other people are living, which is fair, which happens, if, if, if it's hard to hear it, see it, live with it, it brings us down, it burdens our soul, it makes us weary, the Lord's reign is secure. He has installed his king. And he's been sitting on his throne for thousands of years. Psalm 115 says the Lord is on his throne. He does whatever he pleases. Doesn't get any better. I don't, know how to, I don't always know how to make sense of the gap, but the Lord is on his throne. He's installed his king. Nothing can change that. No amount of rebellion or ignorance or messed up disasters, none of that changes the fact that Christ the king is on his throne, and he's not intimidated, threatened, shaken, or anything else. The kings of the earth can take their stand. The rulers of the earth can take counsel together, like Psalm 2 says, get together, put your plans together, be as organized as you want. I have installed my king, is what God says. The Lord reigns. He, he, Jesus said to his followers, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome. I've overcome the world. Taking refuge offers balm for our pain. This is the other side. I said it, that we could rest in the security that God has reigned. But it's also balm for our pain because when those we love hate God, when our friends and family throw off his influence, nobody really walks around, I don't think, using the words of Psalm 2. Like I don't have family members and friends who say, cast off his cords. It's kind of strange language. I mean, I don't, I don't have that happen in my house, you know, or family. Nobody's like, cast off the cords, throw off his fetters. You know, we're, nobody knows. Doesn't do that. But they don't want anything to do with them. They say, let me assert my autonomy. Let me live my way. Leave me alone. I'll do what I want. I don't want to see you again. I don't want to hear about that again. And God gets that. It grieves him too. And the anger that we see earlier in Psalm 2 comes out of this place of pain. For him, it can be pain for us. But in his anger, he chose to offer them grace through the reign of his risen one and only son. And I think his, his reign and the fact that God has offered his son out of grace means I can let go of my anxiety about some of these relationships. I can't fix them. I can't change them. I'm not getting anywhere by talking to them necessarily. So I just, I can let them go. I can say, God knew this better than I did. God experienced the pain more deeply than I did. God understands who they are better than I do, understands me better than I understand myself. I'm going to let this person go. I'm going to let the God of grace reign he said, I've installed my king. He didn't say, Ben, I want you to do some more things about this. Or, Ben, I want you to hold tight. I want you to get worked up. Let's get you. If your blood pressure was higher, if your cheeks were redder, you know, if you skipped out on a meal, if you lost sleep at night. No, he said, I've installed my king. I'm going to let the grace of God and the God of grace reign. Maybe sometimes I just say to myself, God's reigning. God knows what to do. And remind myself of the God that Moses heard from in Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, compassionate, gracious. It's like, okay, okay. I remind myself of that God. Somebody else this morning wrote a book, and I just want to share from, I love what he, he writes. John Dixon, a man who grew up in Australia, wrote a book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. And in the book, he shares his faith journey and I'm taking that and condensing it down a little bit. Don't worry, I'm not going to read you a whole book. This is what he says, again, kind of a condensed version of his story. He says, my own conversion was the result of one person's willingness to embody the mission of the friend of sinners. One of the relics of Australia's Christian heritage is the once-a-week scripture lesson offered in many state high schools around the country. 
One of these scripture teachers had the courage to invite my entire class to her home for discussions about God. The invitation would have gone unnoticed, except that she added, if anyone gets hungry, I'll make hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. As I, as, and John Dixon says, as I looked around the room at all my friends, all skeptics like me, I was amazed that this woman would open her home and her kitchen to us. He says, some of the lads were among the worst sinners in our school. One was a drug user and a drug seller, a class clown and a bully, a petty thief with a string of breaking and entering charges to his credit. I could not figure her out. She was wealthy and intelligent. She had an exciting social life. She was married to a leading Australian businessman. What was she thinking inviting us for a meal and discussion? At no point was this teacher pushy or preachy. Her style was completely relaxed and incredibly generous. When her VCR went missing one day, she made almost nothing of it, even though she suspected quite reasonably that it was somebody from our group. For me, John Dixon says, her open, flexible, generous attitude toward us sinners was the doorway into a life of faith. As we ate and drank and talked, milkshakes, hamburgers, scones, it was clear this was no missionary ploy on her part. She truly cared for us and treated us like friends or perhaps more accurately like sons. As a result, over the course of the next year, she introduced several of us from the class to the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus. Some of you are asking right now, what's a VCR? <laughs> I know, it's a little bit dated. But I'm going to ask a different question. What if I'd asked that, that biker to have a hamburger sometime? I don't think I judged him. I don't think I was hard on him. I told him, you know, told him what he was looking for, nice to him. We interacted a little bit. I mean, it was, nothing else happened but what I shared with you. But what if I'd said... Let's build a relationship. Now, I wouldn't say it like that, of course. But what if I'd like, he would have looked at me like, really? I'm going to punch you, you know? So uh, he'd, have, he'd have revved up his engine and drove away really fast. And I couldn't blame him. But what if I'd built a relationship with him so that somehow I could say Psalm 2 promises a king for life? What if I'd said, hey, sometimes, you know, you're looking for that store, aren't you? One of those days, right? You know, but what if there was a king for life? What if somebody was reigning over in authority of helping you balm for your pain, blessing, security, confidence? What if somebody like that existed? John Dixon, the Australian, met somebody living like that, this woman from his school, this teacher. And it sounds like they stole her VCR, but it didn't shake her love. It didn't shake her security. She knew the Lord reigns. And over that year, she's able to share all these people. The Lord reigns. The Lord loves you. You can, you can take my VCR, but, you know, you can eat my food, but the Lord loves you. He's secure. I'll just keep giving. I'll keep giving. How much more unshakable is God's reign of love? Psalm 1 guarantees a blessing because Psalm 2 promises a king. The Lord reigns. This is the cure for our contradictions this is who delivers us from our divided lives. Technology changes. Humans hurt us. We hurt ourselves. Our faith folds like a bandana on a liquor run. It's a head covering for a heartache. But God says, I've installed my king. Do you know what fills the gaps in your life? It's the affection of Christ for you and the accomplishment of Christ in you. That's what fills the gaps in your life. The affection of Christ for you and the accomplishment of Christ in you. 
That's what fills our gaps. That's what takes care of it. Listen, God has done something in the past. He's installed his king. And as I close, I just want to say one more kind of word picture for you. God took the chief cornerstone and he threw it in the waters of creation. And the ripples have never stopped because he has installed his king. And the ripples are going to keep going and keep going and keep going because the chief cornerstone hit and made a huge splash because he's the installed king of God. And those are just going to keep rippling outward. That truth, that grace is just going to keep rippling outward until the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the seas. Let's lay down our bandanas. Christ offers us the helmet of salvation. Let's pray. Your grace is incredible, Jesus. And there's nothing better we can say at a moment like this than to say what's true about you, that you are the king and that you are reigning. And this morning we sang a song that you, you are wise in all your ways. And as I look over the gaps of my life and the moments of my life and different things, I just have to say you are wise in all your ways because I can't figure it out. I can't make sense of it, but you are on your throne and you are reigning. And I thank you that it's not as simple as saying, well, just get on God's good side. <laughs> it's you made a way, Jesus, and you made a way, and you made a way, and you made a way, and you keep making a way. And it's a way of grace, and it's a way of love, and it's a way of hope, and it's a way of joy. It's a way of new life, and there's nobody else who offers it, nobody else who's made it available but you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask for your help in letting certain things go and embracing Christ as king instead. We ask for your help in just trusting you, just believing in you. It feels really straightforward at times, and it feels really complicated at other times because you're not finished with us yet. But I pray that your work would get farther this week. Your work would, would deepen in our lives this week. Please help us. Please help us in every little sphere to be those, those people who say, the Lord reigns here, the Lord reigns here, the Lord reigns here, the Lord reigns here. That would bring you glory. That would bring other people love and hope and peace and goodness into their lives. Bring us more of that as well. It would be the life you want us to have, the life you died to give us, and we thank you for it. You changed our world, and we thank you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.